Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. How's it going, everybody? We come up with something better than that. I haven't had time. <laughs> my name is Jamel Zanishev. That's Michael. We're, we're uh, doing Bruce Strong here. And today, our very special guest is Avi Shevitz, which is, uh, he is the uh, R&D uh, scientist there at Lalleman uh, and focuses on the, on the brewing part of uh, Lalleman. Lalleman has a lot of different parts to it and a lot of different products, but uh, one division is brewing, and and that's uh, Avi's specific place in things. How are you doing, Avi? I'm doing great, thanks. Really pleased you could join us. I'm sure our, our fine sponsor, Blickman Engineering, would be excited to uh, know that we have a kind of a special guest like yourself on there. Usually it's just us chittering and chattering away. Uh, but uh, <laughs> if you uh, are a, a home brewer, to Pro Brewer, uh, Blickman Engineering, they have everything you could need. You can uh, check them out at BlickmanEngineering.com. Lots of uh, clever uh, devices to make your brew day easier. Let's see here. I want to start off with, I've, I've noticed the the new products that uh, Lalleman has been putting out, which is uh, one like the the Nova Lager and also the, the low, no, no alcohol yeast and uh, the bacteria line. Let's start off with the Nova Lager. So that's a true bottom fermenting yeast. What makes this special in dry yeasts? So as far as dry yeast goes, this is, the whole, the whole development of this was actually super cool. So this was uh, kind of the brainchild of two scientists that came, or that we work with out of uh, Renaissance Biosciences in Vancouver in mm-hmm. Canada. And part of what makes this special is that this is a 100% pure Saccharomyces pastorianus that was created entirely in a lab through modern hybridization techniques. So it's very, you can kind of think of it as almost like very directed breeding. Mm-hmm. So the kind of technology that's implemented in this is like they're literally taking like single cells of these cells that were kind of induced to get into their mating phase so you give them some like, alcohol, <laughs> play some music, yeah. and then and you, sort of you like, rub them together on a little dance floor. Is that how that yeah. works? Almost, like how to, almost. Like you're literally manipulating single cells to kind of like get them to what we call schmoo. Uh, and that's like when the cytoplasm kind of binds when they're in the receptive uh-huh. phase. And then that's when uh, you combine these the two sexual phases of, of well, almost like gametes, right? So it's like... You can think of it as like an analog to a sperm and an egg to just bind, right? Mm-hmm. So this is combined with like high throughput sequencing technology as well as like other high throughput analytics to kind of find the right phenotype. So what really makes uh, Novologer special is that 
This was bred using existing strains of Saccharomyces pastorianus and existing strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae to get a rather unique genomic recombination. So we have our two main families of lager yeast. You have our Saws group and our Froberg group, and those are kind of characterized by their subgenomes, right? So you can kind of think of it as like how much of, say, Saccharomyces eubianus subgenome they have versus how much of the Saccharomyces cerevisiae subgenome they have. And with Novolager, it's pretty much set at about roughly 75% Saccharomyces cerevisiae with 25, about 25% Saccharomyces pastorianus, or uh, sorry, eubianus. And these incorporate a patented technology that comes from a mutation of a from a wine yeast lineage that dramatically decreases the amount of hydrogen sulfide that's produced during fermentation. Mm-hmm. So the cool thing is that this is entirely unique. This is basically a brand new hybrid, and it's still technically classified as a pastorianus because it checks all the hallmarks. It's, you know, it can ferment malbios, it can ferment maltotriose. It's very temperature tolerant, though. So, this is one of the things that kind of sets it apart from the other lager groups is that it can ferment just fine up to 37 degrees Fahrenheit or about 96 degrees, or sorry, 37 degrees Celsius, 96 mm-hmm. degrees Fahrenheit, which really you don't hear about that in, in lager yeast, but right. it's also like perfectly at home down to 10 degrees Celsius, 8 degrees Celsius. We've even been able to get some slow fermentations going on at 4 degrees Celsius Mm -hmm. with almost zero hydrogen sulfide production. So you don't get any of that sulfury, gassy, farty, swampy smell that you get with a typical lager fermentation. So there's a big desire, it seems, in in the homebrew and probably commercial where people have been like, oh, I'll use the Kvike yeast and uh, I'll make a lager with that. And I hate to tell people that doesn't make a lager. It doesn't taste like a lager. It's, you know, you're making something, but it's not not a lager. But this this Nova lager, you're saying you can do, you know, I could do a, you know, a 68 Fahrenheit, 20 degrees C fermentation, and it's going to come out like a lager? Sensibly. It's kind of dependent on, like, how it's treated in terms of the grain bill and, you know, like how it's fermented. One thing that we have noticed is like as you get closer and closer to ale temperatures, it tends to take on more ale characteristics. But that being said, you know, you don't necessarily have to ferment it at 12 degrees Celsius Mm -hmm. or um, whatever that would be in Fahrenheit. Sorry, I can't do the conversions off the top of my head. Um, I'm so used to working in metric at this point. That's all right. Just go metric. (laughs) Okay. But, you know, getting closer to like, say, 15, 18 degrees Celsius, One of the things that we're actually looking into is the real cost savings benefit for that in terms of like total power input required for cooling, Mm -hmm. like cutting off that five degree difference, right? Right. Um, Substantial for a a brewery. Yeah, especially for a larger, larger Mm -hmm. brewery as well. And it really just comes down to experimenting with your own flavor profiles as well. It does produce a rather unique beer at 20 degrees, you know, 70 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, Mm -hmm. 68 degrees Fahrenheit. That is different than an ale, but it might not necessarily check all those boxes of the flavor profile for a lager. Mm-hmm. Matt Harold uh, was saying in the chat, he said that uh, he brewed a Pilsner and a Doppelbach using the Nova Lager and it scored well in the uh, Dominion Cup. It's, he says it's super clean. The Doppelbach is still lagering. He says he loves this yeast. 
you're getting a lot of love in the in the from the listeners about this. Uh, he said he did ferment at lager temperatures, but there is no sulfur and no diacetyl. Oh, good. Oh, I'm, I love good. to hear it. Let's do this. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, uh, I want to hear about the, uh, the low, no alcohol yeast. We'll be back uh, right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. Okay, we're back. We're talking with uh, Avi uh, Shevitz from uh, uh, Lalman Brewing. Uh, you're out in Montreal. Yeah, he is the... Yep. Uh, the uh, lead R&D uh, scientist there for all the brewing uh, products. The low, no alcohol. There's such an excitement about uh, around this. And, you know, we were talking about how the low, no alcohol yeast is not available to home brewers. It is available commercially. And my understanding is the concern around, you know, uh, dangerous things like, you know, botulism spores or whatever, or, or some sort of issue with, you know, because the, the yeast will only ferment uh, glucose, correct? It leaves behind a lot of sugars. And that is, and it's not going to be a low enough pH at that point to, to be protective. And so that's the concern and the, the reason why it goes to commercial brewers. So we're trying to figure out. And so, so we, I guess we had a discussion about, you know, if you sell it to commercial brewers and they screw it up, because there's a lot of commercial brewers we would think would could screw this up very well, because I've seen exploding cans and things like that. You know, then they're going to spread it out and they could possibly kill, you know, dozens of people. Whereas if you sell it to homebrewer, they'll probably just kill one themselves. However, I, I, I'd say this is the supposition we went through. Well, there's a little bit of a, you know, a barrier between you and, you know, the, the person who dies. If the commercial brewer does it, then their liability insurance, you know, has to bear the brunt of it. Whereas if you direct to consumer, then it's all on Lollamond. So how 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 correct are we in our our supposition? Is that generally the case, uh, or is there other reasons why homebrewers can't have the low no alcohol yeast? Yeah, that's that's a really, I mean, yeah, it, that that's of a real your pay grade. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's a bit about my pay grade. I'm you know I'm I'm on the R and D side, so I don't really I mm -hmm. I don't get to dictate a lot of those what do you call it like uh, <laughs> mandates. Um, Marketing decisions. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it really comes down to that. And I mean, it's, and it is a real concern though, especially like, you know, even in the, um, even in the commercial sector, it's, it's something that not a lot of brewers are used to having to deal with mm -hmm. because, you know, making beer, it's a very stable, very microbiologically stable, very safe, mm -hmm. um, food. I mean, it's one of those, I mean, it's so ingrained that it's like one of those things that we were told stories that that's kind of what people drank, you know, back before we had modern plumbing, back before we had modern sanitation, because everybody knew that beer was safer than drinking water. Right. <laughs> so as far as that goes, and yeah, it, it, it directly plays into the um, acidification. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, my background is food science. Um, that's, that's kind of what I was, that's what I went to school for. And we're always, what was hammered into us from day one as part of our program was the four, six rule. So cluster, clusterium botulinum, that is the kind of like safety standard. That's the deadliest foodborne pathogen that you could possibly have. That will not germinate the spores or the botulinum or the clusterium botulinum bacteria will not germinate under a pH of 4.8. So the FDA has mandated a regulation of 4.6 as a cutoff. So you have that 0.2 mm -hmm. uh, pH unit wiggle room. And that's kind of like one thing that we're also doing as part of our launch processes, like educating brewers on proper handling and proper mm -hmm. safety for low and no alcohol beer. Because yes, like under normal circumstances, it just will not ferment enough to bring that pH down low enough to achieve that 4.6. Um, you have brewers pre-acidifying pre the wort um, mm -hmm. before fermentation. They bring it down to, you know, 4.6 and then do the fermentation, you know, in the, in the boil kettle, I assume. They just add some acid and then uh, yeah. take it down and then they go from there and they're safe. Yeah, okay. pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just using like lactic acid or something, right? Food grade lactic, lactic acid, lactic is or phosphoric or something. Mm -hmm. Now uh, that brings up another question. You know that when people massively dry hop a beer, I've seen the pHs go up as high as you know four eight, four nine, on a beer that was you know four two before it got dry hopped. Does that become a concern? Would you say? So my, yeah, my food science background that does kind of ring alarm ring alarm bells but in the standard beer there's enough ethanol though mm -hmm. or that won't really be an issue mm -hmm. but it's still something that you know i i think like as part of best practice best practices that that's something that should be monitored mm -hmm. uh, because acidification is pretty easy it really does not take that much lactic acid right. to kind of like re-acidify a beer mm -hmm. and it really you know it does go a long way for improving like shelf life stability as well in terms of like microbial stability and, and flavor, I've I've been to some breweries and talked to some brewers where, you know, they'll have a beer that's heavily hopped and, you know, the, the flavor isn't quite right. And then I'll tell them, it's like, look, let's just, let's take a little sample and adjust the acid down and then tell me if you think it tastes better. And we'll bring it down from, you know, high fours down to mid fours or maybe, you know, lower fours. And sure enough, they appreciate the taste better at the lower pH. So I've talked to a number of brewers about that. So that's that's pretty interesting. And from a safety aspect, I never thought about that, but also from you know flavor aspect. 
Now, the, speaking of things that can uh, make a beer uh, go south, uh, you guys have a, a bacteria line as well. You've got your uh, your Helveticus and also the the uh, Wild Brew Sour Pitch. So the Sour Pitch is just uh, a straight Plantarum, correct? Correct, yes. And uh, Plantarum is my pick for making kettle sour. Really turns out fantastic. You, you make your wort like normal. Boil it uh, 15 minutes, then cool it down to, you know, around 105 or so. You put your plantarum in, you come back in 24 hours, boil it again, you know, ferment it like normal, and you've got a great kettle sour. Now, what's the Helveticus pitch? How is that different from, from your, your sour pitch? Different species. And part of that kind of goes into, it's more about a little bit of flavor distinction as well. And Helveticus also tends to be a little bit more thermal tolerant. So you can kind of go a little bit higher in terms mm. of your incubation temperature. As what well. are the temperatures for, for both the upper temperature for the uh, Plantarum versus the Helveticus? So our recommendation specifically for the Plantarum is about 30 degrees Celsius. So that's like 90 or uh, it's about like 88, 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. Mm-hmm. Whereas Helveticus, that's more closer to about 100 degrees Fahrenheit or about 40 degrees Celsius. Hmm. Okay. Much lower than I thought. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, Plantarum tends to like it just a little bit cool, mm-hmm. cooler. But overall, like they're, they'll both operate fine at, uh, at 100 degrees. It's just more like... What we found in in the lab, plantarum tends to get, you can eke out a little bit more lactic acid at about 30 degrees Celsius or 85 Hmm. degrees Fahrenheit versus Helveticus, which tends to prefer more of the warmer temperatures. Interesting. Do you have any other bacteria or or weird funky stuff coming? Uh, Britannomyces, (laughs) anything? Uh, So as far as bacteria goes, yeah, we're always looking. We're always looking for stuff. And it's like you said earlier in the introduction. Uh, so Lalamont's a large company and brewing is just a small portion of that, probably around 2.5 to 5% total <laughs> in mm. terms of like, um, of I guess, like total expenditure. But we have a huge division for, for probiotics and mm-hmm. that's mostly lactic acid bacteria. So we're constantly kind of going through like, what can we use from our probiotic line possibly that we can use for brewing? So yeah, we're, 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 we're always on the lookout for stuff like that. We don't really have anything in the works just yet for like specifically for bacteria, but as far as like alternative fermentation methods. So we've seen pretty good success with our Philly sour, which mm-hmm. is a Lachancia species or a pretty Lachancia thermotolerance variant. And one of the things that we want to do is kind of like expand on that, see what else we can do mm-hmm. with with some of the more wild cousins of Saccharomyces mm-hmm. cerevisiae. Part of the problem with that is because we're a dry yeast company, we have to make sure we can dry it. <laughs> right, right. And a lot of these non-sac species have proven very difficult in terms of like producing a dry product that is also up to our standard of quality. Mm-hmm. Not impossible. It's definitely not impossible because, you know, we see that there's the Fermentus or, or Lasaf has their dry Britannomyces, which is pretty cool. 
you know, not, not going to lie. <laughs> Respect right. where it's due. Yeah, that um, is cool. So, so yeah, I, I think that that we'll probably see some products in the future. But for now, yeah, there's really nothing on the horizon that we're working on in terms of, of bacteria specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the, uh, the, the uh, probiotic supplements and all that. When I did a, uh, a kettle sour at uh, Fuller's in England, and um, they looked at buying the pitch, and they were just like, man, that's, that's crazy. So they went to the local shop, and for five pounds, they bought a jar of like a, uh, you know, a probiotic supplement that was all plantarum, and they grew it up in their lab. It worked out great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, hell, I've, I've known brewers to get started with a, with a kettle sour just using sour cream. Right, agriculture right. sour cream, and yeah, people use great. yogurts and things like that. Yeah, um, <laughs> I always you you kind of get a kind of a creamy kind of background to it, though. You you can you can tell it was it was done that way. Yeah, on, <laughs> especially if they throw a bunch in. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So here's a question for you. The listeners are going to kill me if I don't ask you about direct pitching versus rehydrating the yeast first. So specifically, assuming rehydration is done perfectly and it's a it's all at the right temperature, sanitary, and all that, could you quantify for me uh, the difference between just direct adding the yeast to the wort versus properly rehydrating and adding that what's the difference in the live cell count so this is yeah this is something that we're constantly looking at all divisions of lalaman that incorporate any form of rehydration for their processes be it brewing uh distilling hell even baking so the evidence that we've kind of compiled from that was rehydration is still beneficial, but not necessary. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if you rehydrate properly, you will likely be able to get a bit more total live and viable cell counts out, like, you know, above the um, the guaranteed mm-hmm. viability rate. Whereas if you direct pitch, it's going to be fine. Um, mm-hmm. The yeast will be able to fully rehydrate there in the wort. And this kind of has to do with with more about like over the past 20, 25 years of development of these dry products, they've it's gotten down to like a, a real close, real nice, tight tolerance in terms of like how the yeast is dried, how they're prepared, how they're um, mm-hmm. essentially like sort of conditioned to prior to drying so Mm -hmm. the understanding of that's a lot better and you'll still get above you know five five times ten to the nine viable living cells per gram of material but you may you might be able to get six to seven times ten to the nine living cells per gram through rehydration Mm -hmm. this is this is more of like observe or observational evidence but in terms of like impact on fermentation speed kinetics mm-hmm. um doesn't seem to have an impact right yeah matt harold was also asking in the chat and 
any listener, if you're if you go to the uh, the Facebook page and you click on the comments section, uh, you can see other people that have asked questions and you can ask questions yourself in there. Uh, feel free. He's asking, does it affect the lag time at all? So, yes, I, I guess like in a way it could. So the more viable cells that you have coming out of, say, like what we call suspended animation from the drawing process, the more you have coming out of that phase, the shorter the lag phase. However, you'd have to have like quite a significant amount of living cells coming out, really more living cells coming out to really impact that. So your typical concentration based on our recommended pitching rates of say like 0.5 to one gram per liter, Mm -hmm. that should give you approximately 5 million cells per mil, which is pretty good. So, you know, if you want to pitch more above that, that that will decrease your lag time by virtue of the fact that now you have a higher population of living and viable cells. Now, what about uh, does the disparity in the amount of living cells, does that change if you're talking about a really high gravity wort? Let's say people are doing, you know, a big barley wine or Belgian does direct pitching versus rehydration matter more then than it does in mm. average, you know, 5% beer? Yeah, that's, that's a great question because we always recommend a bit higher pitch rate for that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the rehydration does is, especially if you're doing the rehydration in, say, you know, brewing water, mm-hmm. not, not deionized water, but, you know, like right. brewing water to prevent mm-hmm. osmotic shock. Rehydration could potentially provide an advantage for that because now you're transferring it into a very dense, very highly, you know, high osmotic pressure environment. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, giving the cells a little bit more time to kind of wake up and reorient themselves, so to speak, right? So, yeah. you know, they're, they're putting their membranes back together. They're putting their cell walls back together, getting their protein pumps going and stuff like that. In that situation, it's still not strictly necessary, but, you know, if you're doing like a 19 Play-Doh beer, it would probably go a long way to kind of help reduce that lag time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Sure. Yeah. I remember, you know, back, you know, 10, maybe as recent as 10 years ago, Lalaman used to have on their site, website saying, you know, here's how you rehydrate yeast and rehydrate it before you pitch it. But I, I guess you guys have done so much work in improving dry yeast and its ability to withstand the shock of uh, drying and rehydrating that it's become less and less necessary over time. So, you know, I was kind of stuck in the old days of, well, you know, you, you rehydrate all your yeast all the time and maybe, you know, you don't really have to anymore. So that's, that's good to hear. I'd say it's still good practice, but yeah, it's not really necessary. The amount of R&D that's gone into basically prepping the yeast for the drying phase, for the drying process, I mean, yeah, there's been so much work done into that that it's um, it's a pretty exact science at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. So we we have very specific parameters that we look for specifically for brewing yeast, and each strain has to kind of have like its own recipe in mm-hmm. terms of propagation and for biomass production. 
because each strain has slightly different nutritional requirements, slightly different environmental stresses that are required for it to do just the right thing to kind of prepare it for this stressful, for this stressful event of drying. That's the key because that drying event, that's probably the biggest amount of stress that the yeast will go through. And the yeast that survive that, like, you're pretty much good to go. I mean, so you're, 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 you're stressing them to make them produce certain proteins and mm-hmm. enzymes that will, they will use in to protect them there and, and to recover. Precisely. So yeah. you don't want to stress them too much, but you just want to get like enough of a stress in there that they start activating these uh, metabolic pathways that they use for protection. So you have your heat shock protein metabolic mm-hmm. pathways, you have your trellis uh, metabolic pathways, and these are all kind of geared towards like stabilizing, preparing the yeast to stabilize its membrane just prior to drying. And then, so that means, because like essentially what happens, like you're removing 93 to 97% of water from that. Mm-hmm. So you're, mm-hmm. like you're like the yeast under an electron microscope look like little raisins. And what's really important is how that membrane kind of folds together, right? So it's kind of like crinkling up. And what that what needs to happen after rehydration is that like once it starts taking up water again and it takes up water, they, like the individual cells will just take up water really fast. It needs to just kind of like pop out, like mm-hmm. get right back to its original shape. Mm-hmm. And these are chemical reactions that happen super fast. So they need very specific quantities of specific proteins, specific carbohydrates to kind of help reinforce their cell membrane that just kind of like when they get, when they pop back into shape, when they rehydrate and wake up, there's no ruptures, the cell membrane's intact, there's minimal damage. There will always be like some damage, like going through any kind of process like that, but the cells can repair themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, all right, here's here's maybe a, a very basic question. When you're rehydrating yeast, um, you're told to sprinkle it on the top of the water and let it sit. And you see the the cells, you know, start to drop down into the into the liquid as as they rehydrate. But you're told never to stir the 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 yeast while it's sitting on top. Why is that? Ah, because that's where the yeast is at its most vulnerable. Any mechanical action that that imposes a shear force onto mm-hmm. the yeast and that could unintentionally disrupt the cell membrane so it's kind of like like i mean imagine like you're holding a water balloon and you know you're sitting in your chair and you spin around really fast mm-hmm. right the water balloon is going to want to deform kind of right. like that okay interesting oh good 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 all right you mentioned temperature and dennis had had written in this guy works at nasa as a uh, engineer and NASA (laughs) says, what are the best practices regarding dry yeast and pitching temperature? Uh, Because you mentioned heat shock proteins. And I've always said, you know, you don't want to pitch your yeast uh, to too high a temperature gradient because it causes them to express the heat shock proteins. You should be pitched uh, near the temperature of the wort, but they should be rehydrated around 95 degrees Fahrenheit I have also heard that yeast should not be cooled quickly and should not be set out for a long period or they will deplete the reserves. So what is the best compromise of pitching temperature and cooling time after rehydrating the yeast at 95 degrees Fahrenheit and pitching to a 60 degree Fahrenheit wort? 
that temperature difference, that delta T right there between 60 degrees Fahrenheit and 90 degrees Fahrenheit is not too bad. Um, I would be more concerned about pitching directly into a cold wart. So, you know, you're talking like maybe um, 40 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, I, I've, I've gone through trials where I've tried to see like how long it would take to kind of starve them out of out of viability mm-hmm. in terms of just like just allowing them to rehydrate and then letting them sit like i've i've had samples go for 72 76 hours and still maintain roughly 99 percent of the viability that they had at the start mm. so yeah they, they store quite a bit of glycogen prior to going prior to drying as mm-hmm. well as membrane membrane bound trailose so as far as like depleting their internal energy stores wouldn't really be too concerned about that but temperature definitely like that's something that you should be on the lookout for but going into say 60 degrees and uh, yeah that might be a little bit too cold but you know 68 degrees when you're getting like depending on what you can manage with your heat exchangers with your heat exchange system mm-hmm. that's that's really not too bad the yeast themselves like the living cells that come out of the drying that's process funny. Those are mature cells. Those are cells that are already adapted to a stressful environment. They're good to go. Mm-hmm. You won't really encounter that much heat shock or temperature shock, sorry, from rehydration to a cooler wort. In fact, that's why like it's perfectly okay to just direct pitch into a, a warm or a chilled wort. No, so a lot of people, they'll store their dry yeast in the refrigerator. And then is it okay to just open them up and pour them directly in from the refrigerator, or should you let it come to room temperature if you're say you're brewing a sixty degree, sixty eight degree yes. Fahrenheit? That you should probably bring up to room temperature uh, because that you know then you're moving from a four degree system up to a sixty degree system. That you know that's a, you know that's a fifty four degree, mm-hmm. fifty six degree difference right there. Right. Or wait, sorry, I'm thinking metric again. <laughs> So four degrees Celsius going up to say like 20, 25 Mm -hmm. degrees Celsius, going from cold to warm rather than from warm to cold can be a little bit more stressful for the yeast. Mm. So if you're moving like out from your fridge, yeah, it's a good idea to kind of let it warm up for a little bit. Let it sit on, sit on on the brew shelf there for, you know, half an hour or whatever, I'm sure come up to temp nicely. Okay, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have more questions uh, for the R&D scientist at Lalamond right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking. We're talking yeast with Lalanum, which is awesome. I'm so glad that you could do this for us. Your time is much appreciated. Yeah, glad to be here. Let's see here. We've got a couple other questions. One from uh, Travis, who could not be here today. He said, uh, "All this talk about biotransformation precursors and appropriate yeast strains. The precursors will obviously be a limit." But does the biotransformative, biotransformative uh, enzyme activity in a yeast run out? 
or um, is a yeast going to do whatever it's going to do given enough time, regardless of the total enzymatic activity? And would this affect re-pitching? Never thought really of good that. question. Yeah, yeah. Is, so, there, is there a limit to the enzymatic activity for biotransformation uh, in, in those yeasts? So it really, it really does depend on the pathways that are being used for biotransformation. So you have enzymes like beta-glucosidases, right? So those are the enzymes that are responsible for, let's say, liberating bound terpenes in hops. Mm -hmm. Those enzymes can be excreted by the yeast. So that's something that like once, and those are very stable enzymes. So once they're in the beer system, they'll just kind of continue doing what they're doing given you know, right. they'll, they they'll kind of be out, working right. at a constant rate. Unless they yeah, become so, denatured by, would by heat. High, high alcohol also denatured possibly? It's no, it's, I, it would be more dependent on pH at that point. Mm -hmm. But there's not going to be anywhere near enough of a pH change. Right. Um, or temperature to or those. alcohol. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for like most beta-glucosidases, um, I believe the denaturation pH would be around 8.5, 9. So <laughs> right. you got you got to check your um, caustic tanks if that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And what about uh, repitching? So repitching, it wouldn't necessarily impact that. So from generation, I guess if you, you can think of it as like generation to generation, we're dealing with single-celled organisms. So these are very fast, very, very fast replicating organisms that can, populations can change. You know, they can mutate, they can gain mutations within a single brew sometimes, depending on the individual yeasts are the original culture that was used. Some yeasts are more hardy in terms of like maintaining their genetic stability where other yeasts might not be. And also, I mean, it comes down to like the selective pressures that the brewers put on those yeasts that could come down to term, you know, to uh, variables like gravity, pH, when the yeast was harvested, at what point during fermentation the yeast was harvested. So it's very easy to kind of accidentally manipulate that. But as far as like the metabolic pathways that control for, for biotransformation, we kind of see that like that's not really impacted by repitching. So you should see, you should see like similar levels of biotransformation capabilities. It gets a little muddy when you start to deal with, say, bioengineered yeast. And this is something that that we do a lot in my lab. You know, we're constantly just looking at like very specific pathways. And to do to accomplish this, we kind of have to manipulate yeast strains either by adding metabolic pathways or removing metabolic pathways. And depending on the pathway, where it's located on the genome, that can all change from one pitch to another. So, but as far as like the naturally occurring pathways that we see, they, they tend to be pretty stable. Because most brewers' yeasts are very stable in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, we've been, humans have been selecting for those properties for, you know, 9,000 years at this point. So that we, highly we put, repetitive. We put some time in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and Michael, you had uh, a couple of questions as well. 
Yeah. Most of mine are kind of practical brewing uh, related, not so much in the metabolic pathways or things like that. For me, the big one, I've used dry yeast a little bit, mostly a liquid yeast guy because I like to make starters. And I guess what would your be your thought process be on propping up with dry yeast, specifically handling? I know sprinkling the word, you should probably almost rehydrate before you do this, I would guess, or I'll get your thoughts. And then also a big difference I've noticed in the pitching rate recommendations for dry yeast versus liquid yeast versus even book values for pitch rates. I mean, I did a little run through and uh, for a 10 gallons of 15 plate of work, Lalamond for your Lal Brew BRY97, it called for three 11 gram packs, which is 165 billion. I would pitch that same work with liquid yeast at 428. So I go from uh, 0.28 billion cells per liter per Play-Doh to 0.0 or 0.75. So it's almost like a three times more yeast. Traditionally, at least what I've been always told and taught. And I guess kind of two things like making starters and then do I make starters to what you guys are pitching or should I not make starters with dry yeast? I guess there's like four questions in there. Sorry. But <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No worries. So, um, yeah, just your thoughts on all that. So, Primary differences between... Um, the dry yeast and the liquid yeast is that once you put the liquid culture into your your wort, it, I mean the yeasts are are rearing and ready to go. Whereas you know for the dry yeast, they, they kind of have to undergo a wake up process. So that initial pitch seems like total viability per gram seems a little bit lower. But when you get down to like the individual cell count per gram, it's it's roughly equal because one of the unfortunate side effects of drying is that you do end up with viable but not culturable cells. So part of that initial pitch, some of those yeasts will be metabolically active. They will be fermenting. They just won't be able to reproduce. So there will be a subset of that population that will just kind of like die off, but you'll have those will be quickly replaced by the viable culturable cells. So as far as like pitch rate goes, we kind of always go through, at least for myself, from from my research perspective, pitch rates are still kind of like, it's more of like what you were taught. Uh, I mean, this is something that I found throughout the brewing industry and, you know, talking with people at, you know, Holly, at even Anheuser-Busch when I was working with them, it's really just kind of like what they were taught because that's how they find that their yeast behaves best. My rule, my own personal rule of thumb is I will typically recommend a pitch rate of 1 million cells per mil per degree Play-Doh, right? So if you have a 12 Play-Doh wort, that'll be 12 million cells per mil pitch rate. So part of the recommendations that come from the liquid yeast providers versus, versus our you know, versus Lalman is that that's kind of the ideal situation. That's the ideal scenario that that the liquid producers have found within their set of R and D. So it's kind of difficult to like really correlate those to even even across different brands of of liquid yeast providers. So it's more like kind of just if you know the cell counts and you have a cell count that works good for you, I'd say stick with that. I've, um, I've always and, said the, the the best pitch rate. Is the one that gives you the flavor you're looking for. Yeah. You know, and if it's less, if it's more, then you're not, you're not pitching wrong. You're, you're pitching what works. 
So I, I, I guess as a follow up to that is like I was kind of did my little examination with your calculator versus like kind of I what I've learned from how to brew and other sites is like, you know, that, yeah, I guess, like I said, kind of the book value for an ale, 0.75 million per milliliter per Plato. But on the calculator, it kind of hit me at like, based on your billion cells per gram, it ended up being kind of, you know, three times less yeast for the dry versus what I've always been told to use for liquid yeast and then also making starters. So is there kind of, am I misreading something there? Or is that, is that kind of a, cause I've even noticed that with other brands with their dry yeast, they're kind of telling me, Oh, you only need one little pack for your whole 10 gallon batch. Cause I make 10 gallon batches. So it seems like the under pitching of dry yeast, or at least the recommendation from the manufacturers of dry yeast is to under pitch versus book values. So I was just curious what your thoughts were on that. Yeah. So as far as I know, the that yeast pitch calculator kind of goes through like the recommendations of the lower ends of right. of the recommendations, because that'll still provide you know, say like we recommend 0.5 grams per liter. That'll still provide about 2.5, roughly 2.5 million cells per mil when you pitch, assuming that you go through the 0.5 grams per mil whereas like one gram per mil will provide roughly five five million cells per mil uh, once fully diluted so that that comes out to about five times ten to the nine or five billion cells per gram now as far as like a starter culture goes one one thing that dry yeast is really good for is that you know you don't have to use the whole package that when you buy it like you could take like if you have an 11 gram sachet or a 500 gram brick or whatever Take a couple grams out of that, put it into a uh, into a, a media solution, say like Wort or maybe YPD, um, the yeast peptone dextrose media, and grow that up. And within 24 to 48 hours, you'll have more than enough cells to to mm-hmm. pitch from there. So it, it, they really do lend themselves well just as a seed culture cool. if you don't want to use the whole pack. Right. Here's a, here's a question from uh, John. It says, I'm a home brewer in Brazil, as I live far from other brewers, and uh, the mail from the States is not fast enough for liquid yeast. I make do with dry yeast. I recently learned that there is evidence that dry yeast need not be aerated, oxygenated. And also, uh, Glenn asks in the chat, he says, normally I need about 14 to 16 grams of dry yeast using the Lalleman calculator. Could I use one pack at 11.5 grams and oxygenate to get more growth and a higher pitch rate? Oh, yeah. Oxygenation definitely will not hurt. But alternatively, it's not needed. Uh, One of the nice things about the dry yeast is that it actually comes prepackaged with its own source of materials for building cell walls and for building cell membranes. Part of the reason why yeast need oxygen is to produce sterols, and those sterols are used for uh, membrane repair, for reproduction, so they can, you know, so the daughter cell can build enough membrane to be able to butt off. But dry yeast comes with, with emulsifiers already in there. Mm-hmm. So already incorporated in, into the, the dry material itself. And those emulsifiers essentially act as like an oxygen carrier because they're an oxygen-containing emulsification agent that the yeast can readily uptake as part mm-hmm. of their just normal metabolic repair processes. Also, 
there's just a lot of dead yeast that come with the package itself. So one gram of dry material is guaranteed for greater than five times 10 to the nine or about 5 billion cell living cells per gram. But there's going to be more cellular material in there because yeast will inevitably die during the process. drying process. Mm -hmm. So that itself kind of acts as like nutrient in a way for Mm -hmm. for these to repair themselves additional Um, uh, lipids and amino acids yeah Mm -hmm. but as far as like so that's why oxygenation is not required uh, because they have all the components there necessary without the step of having to uptake oxygen to then synthesize those sterols to Mm -hmm. then synthesize um, membrane material but as far as oxygenation goes it definitely won't hurt. In fact, we do see in the laboratory space under laboratory conditions that we can boost cell growth, you know, get a higher density of cell material when we're propagating from a dry yeast sample with an aerated culture. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing a starter, definitely some, some aeration will encourage more growth. Aeration, high um, high velocity or uh, high agitation. So if you have a shaker or a stir plate, um, that goes a long way because just anything to kind of like at least get a little bit of that air liquid interface kind of mixing Mm -hmm. to bring in that dissolved oxygen. Okay, let's see here. I could throw one more if you... Sure, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I was also checking out your website and kind of trying to read through the different strains. And I I realize everybody's got to have their branding, but do you have any kind of resource or do you know where a good resource would be for kind of comparing your brands to, let's say, like the origins of yeast? So I know that there's a lot of like A38 juice is the same as London Ale 3, which is the same as London Fog, which is at the end of the day, a Boddington strain. I'd be curious if you had anything like that where we could, if we're looking for Lalamand's version of Boddington's or, you know, Levinstefan or, you know, Chico, would you have a good resource for that? Or do you just got to kind of read the descriptions and try to figure it out kind of thing? uh, That's a good point. We are usually pretty open about stuff like that. I mean, it's pretty well known that the BRY97 brand is a Chico strain. Right. Very closely related to the BRY96, which is the Chico strain. You know, things like that. As far as like any publication material, I would have to check with our salespeople because, I mean, this is something that we do know internally. I mean, any yeast company is going to be comparing their own products with with other people's products, you know, at least genetically. But I don't don't know if we actually have anything published specifically on that, but I can can check. I think think it'd be good to provide this information, but I always caution people that it's not going to be 100% the same. So if you're talking uh, White Labs, uh, you know, 01 and YEast 1056 and the USO5 and the uh, 97 or 96, the thing is when it was initially selected by the the yeast uh, producer, they plated them all out and then they picked single colonies, they grew them up and said, yeah, this one tastes the best, attenuates the best. This is the one that we want to use to make our product. And that's different at each 
different yeast producer. They're not taking, you know, a bunch of people didn't take a, oh, a one from White Labs and then just start producing it. They actually went through their own process of initially capturing and propagating. And when they made that decision, it's slightly different than the decision that was made somewhere else. So everybody has a different product. So I'd, I'd urge you to try all the different uh, yeasts from all the different manufacturers and see which one you like the best. And that's the one to go with. And don't don't just assume that you could just take somebody else's and it's going to be identical. It will be different in some way. So, yeah, that's one of those things about about yeast. You know, there's the very slight variations that you can get, even when you think you're getting exactly the same thing. Um, and, you know, uh, like Avi was saying about repitching, how you do your selection when you're repitching. That and the and the, the environmental pressures that you put on the yeast when you were brewing with it and growing the yeast, that is going to change how that yeast performs. That's why, you know, in England, you go and there's a brewery that's been using their same pitch of yeast for, you know, 50 years, 100 years. It's completely different at that point than the original source because of the the the, the pressures that are put on it, the uh, the selection pressures that are put on it. So it's fascinating. It's a, I think it'd be a great to see, you know, a comparison table for all the different yeasts from all the different companies. So at least you get an idea. And once you get the idea, don't don't just assume they're the same. Right. And actually, so Brew Chatter put it out. It was a really neat table that they had kind of put together where, mm. but they would only do the, it was, uh, I think, Imperial white yeast and, and white labs, which is unfortunate because there's so many other brands out there. I'd like to mm-hmm. see all those kind of, and like you said, get to try each one. And it's like, which is my favorite Chico and which yeah, is my side favorite. by side of all of them. Yeah, yeah. That'd be really fun. Almost like running experiments and doing things and kind of making it like more yeast experimentations with similar strains. And so that was my question. I agree. Yeah. Good question. I think that Especially now, since bioinformatics technology is getting a lot cheaper than it was 15, 20 years ago, we will start to see more publications like that where people will be able to publish either like in an academic setting or say like the Master Brewers Association Technical Quarterly publications, but just taking commercial samples, sequencing them and comparing those sequences because, I mean, the, the price has gone down you know, what was $100,000 20 years ago can run you $100 now to wow. do the sequencing. Wow. So the technology has just gotten so much better, so much faster that I have no doubt that we'll, we'll probably start seeing more publications like that. So cool. yeah, we're, we're, we're at a pretty good time in, in information technology. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. hell, especially with like the, you know, upcoming AI revolution, things like that, like stuff like yeah. that is just going to be super easy to publish. Well, that's and it's not it's not proprietary either. I mean, it's like you, you can buy a pack of yeast and submit it for sequencing. <laughs> well, and uh, that's one of the questions I had for you. I'm I'm working on a a book about modern uh, brewing, and um, I was thinking about how dry yeast has really changed over the last 25 years from something that you know there was like a single strain. <laughs> And you had to worry about bacteria in it, and you know half of it was dead when you when you put it in the in the work. So what what you've achieved today, I'm curious about the the steps that that got you there, but also what do you see as the future of brewing, especially as it concerns yeast? What do you what are you imagining? What is the what what does tomorrow going to bring? 
I think, especially with the rise of companies like Berkeley Yeast and Omega Yeast, which are run by highly competent scientists with very strong genetic backgrounds, we're going to see a lot of, I think we're going to see be seeing a lot more in terms of like personalized yeast strains, like getting, being able to order engineered strains to be able to do highly specific things for you. At the same time, I think that we'll also probably start to see a bit of a return to the traditional too, because there's always going to be that pushback, which I I just love seeing, especially here in Montreal. I love seeing this return to just a classic, nice classic lager yeast. <laughs> right. I mean, I enjoy an IPA as much as the next guy, but I want to go into a bar and not see 13 out of 14 taps with IPAs on them. <laughs> yeah, true. So yeah, I think I think it's going to be really interesting in that we're, we'll definitely see like a rise in more customized strains, but at the same time, we're, we're also going to see a lot of return to like the traditional bioprospecting is getting pretty big, especially, you know, this ties back into the affordability of sequencing technology now, where you can go out into the wild and try to harvest yeast yourself. I mean, that's exactly how Philly Sour came around. And then there's a number of yeast strains from different companies that came around that way. Philly Sour was, was discovered by accident on the bark of a dogwood tree in a graveyard in Philadelphia. And it turns out that this particular variant of thermotolerance, um, sorry, of uh, Lachancia thermotolerance has transporters that are not seen in other Lachancia species. So it's very good at fermenting maltose. And this was discovered completely by accident. And that was in part because the technology is there now to just kind of quickly go through like dozens and dozens of cultures, if not hundreds of cultures. So, I mean... Who who discovered this? Who was who was swabbing dogwood trees in the cemetery? <laughs> so that was uh, Dr. Matt Farber. He was a professor at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia, which I think changed its name recently. He's now at Rowan University, but that was part of his projects. He was the brewing professor there, and part of his his research was he was just going around the city, seeing if they can find like a unique Philadelphia strain. Mm -hmm. And then after a, after a little bit of time, a little research, a little trial and error, they found this interesting species at the time. Couldn't quite tell um, if it was a thermotolerance, but a lot of these things, microbial taxonomy is very messy, extremely messy. So it's very difficult to tell without like a lot of in-depth studies. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, hell, like we don't even know if it's a true thermotolerance yet, but it, we're seeing a lot of similarities. But for now, we're kind of just calling it like a Lachancia species. And the fact that it made really good beer was just kind of a side effect of that. So yeah, I mean, that, but that's literally like how mm -hmm. new species are discovered. I mean, that was part of one of my projects too. I was just going around to different orchards in central Oregon, seeing if I could find anything interesting just by swabbing fruits, swabbing grapes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the, the brewery that I used to own, we uh, were kind of in a, in an area where the wind blows across the Delta and across the, the marshes and across a lot of you know, vineyards and orchards and all just kind of, 
hits that that one spot as the winds converge. And we used to take a wort uh, in a um, in a fifty five gallon drum, and we at the end of the night the the skylights they had open louvers, and we would put it on the the scissor lift and raise it up to the to the louvered uh, skylights and leave it overnight. And then we'd bring it down in the morning and it would have a, a, a big croissant on top and it would be, uh, you know, fully fermenting. And we, we would plate that out and find all sorts of interesting things in there. And we, we did think we found a, a new strain of bread, but uh, we never really did get it confirmed. So I'm curious. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. Even, even with all this modern technology, it's still, it's still really difficult to kind of like place previously unsequenced microbes like where do they really fall within like mm -hmm. uh, within their with, within their genus you know it's like it is fascinating uh let's see here let's take one more short break when we come back we'll have just a couple more questions for you i promise sure. we'll be back <laughs> right after this Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking with uh, Avi uh, Shevitz from uh, Laloan. He is the uh, R&D scientist for the, the brewing division there. And um, he's just filled with, with lots of fascinating information. And uh, I could talk to you for for probably another eight hours and not not be done with our questions so hopefully we can have you back hopefully this hasn't been too bad an experience and we can we can talk you into it taking time away from work to uh to chat with us matt harold was asking asking about the um uh the uh cell walls being fragile during rehydration but if you were making a starter uh, on a stir plate Let's say it was with uh, yeast that were already in a, a fully liquid state. He's asking if there's any detrimental effects at high speeds. Should we be slowing down our stir plates to reduce shear forces on yeast when we make starters? I always said only go fast enough to see a slight dimple in the top of the liquid, and then that's plenty fast. I've seen people do huge vortexes that go all the way down to the bottom of the thinking it's better, and and uh, I my take on it is that that can damage the yeast considerably. I think the more rotations of the stir bar, the the worse it is for the yeast eventually. Yeah. So any kind of like intense shear force or sorry, any kind of intense rotational force like that will impact like membrane stability. But generally speaking, um, I like most stir bars can't really spin fast enough to really kind of damage the yeast too badly or in any meaningful capacity. But I do like the rule of thumb of just spinning it fast enough to get a dimple because really all you need is like, you just need that water movement. You just need that liquid movement um, because that's what's causing, you know, that's what's causing the micro interactions between the surface gas interface. Like, and that's where you're getting your dissolved oxygen. So it doesn't have to be like super vigorous. The best way to do it is an, an aeration stone mm -hmm. if, if you have that. But, you know, stir plate is fine. There you um, go. I could throw in that I usually do it fast enough just so it doesn't get crazy croissant-y. Yeah. Anything, yeah. Just to control that too. Yeah. 
I've had it burst out. <laughs> Once his yeast get going. Oof. This is from Jason. He says, hey, during uh, yeast counting with our bottom cropping from the cone of our fermenters, we continuously get about 65% viability, which I know is too little. How do we increase this? We have so far just been pitching dry yeast from up top. I know you have said to rehydrate the dry yeast in previous podcasts, but one of the employees had attended a yeast seminar a few years back and said that uh, it should not be a problem. But I still wonder if it affects the flocculated yeast at the bottom. What do you think? Yeah. One of the first things that I learned in brewing was we would uh, dump the first few centimeters of the cone. Mm -hmm. uh, because those early flocculating yeasts, those yep. tend to be the unhealthiest. And you don't want yeast. those at all. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's it's kind of like very dependent on the system itself, uh, you know, because it'll depend on the cone size, the volume. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, for like my lab, I have, you know, I have 35 liter fermenters. So that, that cone's going to be real tiny. But when, so when I harvest yeast, it's kind of like, I just do like a quick, quick dump. <laughs> with that but you know depending on your system you you kind of want to find that sweet spot where you know you're getting like you don't want the super top part of the yeast the late flocculators but you don't want the early flocculators you kind of want to find like that nice spot in the middle where you're getting that good viability um, and then you're generally also selecting for yeast that flocculate at the right time they're not coming out too early not coming out too late um, but yeah, it's kind of like, it's definitely trial and error at that point. You really got to hone it into your individual system. But I that would add, yeah, the, the very early stuff uh, is a no-no. But I would add that, you know, the cones on a lot of the fermenters are not uh, well jacketed, you know, and so the cones can, if you, if you have a very hot environment, let's say you're in Texas, <laughs> you know, it's uh, mm, that's a good point. 10 degrees out. Yeah, the cones can can get kind of warm, and you know you're you're talking about a small cross section there. So issues like that can happen. Usually they're not insulated either at the very bottom, and so the conduction of the metal up and through there can can cause some warming. So yeah, like uh, Avi's saying, you pull a little little further and get into that you know uh, center section, and maybe that would up the the. Uh, Total viability. The other thing is time. Depends on all year of the brewing process. So it's hard, impossible to say for sure, but I'm sure somebody could dial it in. And then uh, I guess, you know, if if they're pitching a lot of yeast, and like you're saying, um, you know, some of the yeasts are not able to reproduce initially, those may be part of the non-viable at the end. You know, so perhaps uh, rehydrating might might help in a small amount. So there you go. And Michael, did you have one more before we uh, let Avi go? Heck yeah. So yeast nutrients. Yes. I've noticed that all brands across all, you know, things I've read, spec sheets, they, they, they specify the nutrients dose per, you know, work volume, not necessarily pitch size. And is that on purpose? Is that because they don't want to involve pitch size further complicate things? What would it, what do you think about that? Like, why not give a, a a dose rate of like, let's say, you know, I use Fermato, you know, in terms of a grams per gallon per Play-Doh. Or, you know, if you're making starters, I would think it'd be like, you know, in a grams per billion cells because 
You're, are you, and then are you starting at the finishing or the end or the beginning? Kind of what are, you, what are your thoughts on pitch size for dose rates for newts? Um, so the way that I've always used, viewed the nutrition is that you're pretty much providing enough nutrition for the whole population over the course of the entire fermentation, right? right. So no matter what you start with, you will always kind of like level out. So in a liquid, yeast or hell, any, any microorganism will reach a maximum population density. So in bacteria, it'll be a bit higher because you're dealing with very tiny, tiny, tiny microorganisms. Whereas with yeast, it tend, there could be 10 to 100 times bigger than a typical bacterium. So we tend to see like a maximum population of about 10 to the 8 cells per mil, and that will remain stable like post-log phase. What we're aiming for with, um, or what most manufacturers are aiming for, for those yeast nutrients is supplying those specific nutrients for that population. So even if you start with one or two orders of magnitude lower than that, there'll be enough nutrients to support a healthy, pretty much maximum population for that. So that's why it tends not to be based off of pitch rate, but rather like wort volume. Because you want to aim for, say, if you're like aiming for like a specific, say, milligram per liter concentration of a, I don't know, uh, let's say zinc. Yeah, let's say zinc or calcium sulfate or 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 something like 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 some kind of some some kind of important salt, right? Um, it should be enough there to one, not cause any like metal toxicity for the yeast, but also enough to support the entire population, both present and future. Yeah. If that makes uh, sense. Well, and I guess, so just the, kind of the follow-up, like I'm throwing 200 billion cells into a two liter starter. Mm -hmm. Do I calculate the, the nutrient dose using the guidelines, which is, you know, usually like two grams per hundred liters. So I'm out there, you know, I'm making up solutions to cut, or should I, Treat it like I was pitching a full size beer. I guess I'm just curious, like, because. Oh, sorry. Maybe you know what I'm saying. Maybe are are yeah, you like, putting the nutrient into the starter? Yeah, that's what I do. And I just kind of ah, try okay. to get them so that they're, you know, I go from, let's say, 200 billion to 400 billion. I, I, I dose enough nutrient, or at least I'm kind of taking a swag at it to hopefully have enough nutrients for the whole 400. I realize I don't even really need them, but I'm just kind of throwing them in there just a little bit. So, but versus if I was to try to calculate that with the starter volume, it'd be almost nothing versus, and right. I, but I'm still pitching 200 billion cells. So it's like, is that? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I would recommend unless it's like specifically for, like if it's a nutrient for starter, I would recommend just tossing that into the, tossing that into the wort itself uh, okay. because the, the the yeast will be fine in your starter because it, it's they're not going to be spending that much time there like maybe 24 48 hours during that time and then it's really like once you put it into that larger volume that's like you know that's when you'll those nutrients will really come in handy okay cool yeah that's good information i've always wondered about that okay yeah yeah sorry i, I totally misunderstood yeah, that's cool. i get it yeah no, you've you've been uh, absolutely fantastic. I appreciate you uh, being with us today. And like I said, if we could have you again, it would be uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. I know everybody is really excited to uh, hear what you had to say. And 
you're, you're, you're a rock star with this information here. You're really great. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I enjoy talking about this stuff. So <laughs> anytime. Clearly. And you, you make it very accessible. So, uh, greatly appreciated. And, uh, we also greatly appreciate, uh, our sponsor, uh, Blickman engineering. If you get a chance, email John Blickman at feedback at blickmanengineering.com. Tell him how much you appreciate that he pays for the show. So you don't have to, and, uh, you know, he's the reason why you're getting all this fine content. Thank you so much to Lalaman for letting Avi spend, uh, you know, uh, an hour plus with us today because I'm sure you got all sorts of great products to uh, to create and, and to do. And uh, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. All right, awesome. Until then, everybody, Bruce Strong. Bruce Strong.